When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You're listening to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, the West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined as always by the great Dan Feinberg, THR's chief TV critic. What's up, Dan? It's a hot one, Leslie. A hot one. Yeah, it's about uh, 95 here in Burbank. Uh, feels like at about 80% humidity as well. It's very, very hot for summer here. It's it's mid-August, so so it goes. Seems like seems like a good time to to take a vacation of some sort, I would say. Yeah, Dan, I think you're going out of town first. I I am indeed uh, going to be taking a little bit of time off, which just means that you want to make this podcast last because we're taking a week off next week. But fortunately, there's lots of good stuff in this week's podcast to to keep you busy. But also, we're recording this a hair early. And so if there is shocking breaking news in the next couple days that we don't get to cover, either we'll find a way to somehow backtrack into it or you'll just have to accept that this podcast is a relic of a simpler time and by a simpler time i mean tuesday (laughs) yes indeed we are dark august 26th our next episode will be september 2nd when we will be joined by bruce miller the showrunner of the handmaid's tale this week however we're going to skip headlines and get into two bigger topics or a couple of bigger topics before we get into a showrunner spotlight with chris estrada the creator and star of hulu's this fool. With that said, let's just dive right in and leading off. Number one. It's official station group. Next star has purchased a 75% stake of the CW with current owners, Paramount and Warner brothers discovery maintaining a 12.5% stake each. So what does this mean exactly? Well, First, if you are an avid listener of this podcast, you already know what it means because we've definitely talked about this because this leaked back in January. So now that it's official, I think the most interesting part of all of the comments from the Nexstar executives were was the reveal that the CW's average audience is 58 years old, which, Dan, I don't know how you received that info, but I literally did a double take and made sure to, to, to check the transcript and everything else to make sure I didn't read that wrong. Uh, okay, because so here's, what? Here's this, how, their demo is 18 to 34, but their average viewer is 58 years old. Okay, so but here's how... <laughs> Here's how I re- here's how I responded to it, and uh, and when you're done laughing, either you'll know the answer or you won't, and whatever. I-, I just took that to mean that absolutely nobody in the CW's target demo actually watches TV on TV, and everyone's watching everything that they watch from the CW online. And so and so to me, yeah, that's correct. Yeah. So to me, it was something to absolutely make fun of, and and for sure, I had a good chuckle, and I I've enjoyed some of the memes of old people sitting watching CW shows and trying to make sense of Riverdale and whatnot. But but more than more than anything, what my takeaway was, well, okay, sure, the younger people are watching it in other ways and it's not being measured in exactly the same way. And yes, it does not surprise me that nobody in the CW's target demo actually watches the CW on television live 
any of that stuff. So I, I was simultaneously very amused, but not shocked because I think I had a sense of what the underlying meaning of it was. Yeah, and you're right. Most CW viewers definitely watch their that content on CW Seed or the CW app, all of which, of course, are included in the deal with Nexstar. So what does this mean going forward? Well, Nexstar said that its plans is to broaden out the network, which would mean programming that appeals to viewers that are close to or around age 58. So basically what you're probably going to see after this coming season is more content that that's focused on 18 to 49. But as for the immediate future, well, we already know that Mark Pedowitz will continue to remain CEO of the CW. They have all renewed and canceled all of their shows. They already have their, their schedule for the 2022-23 broadcast season set up. Unless there's some massive, massive change at Nexstar and they're like, we're going to get rid of all of this. We're going to pay to make the, all these things go away, which isn't going to happen because they are going to cut things rather than buy things first. So basically it's going to be business as usual for the for, uh, foreseeable future for the, the coming season. What I think may change that you'll start to see is when Pedowitz starts buying scripts. And that means chances are very high that he's going to be buying from other studios beyond Warner Brothers TV and CBS Studios, who were the co-owners of the CW and who supplied all of the programming for the network. So there's what's going on there with, with that. But, you know, in, in terms of what the hell Nexstar is, well, it's the largest owner of local TV stations in the United States. It's got a portfolio that includes cable network News Nation. And if that sounds familiar, it's because News Nation used to be WGN America, which, if you remember, used to have some really, really great original programming. And then basically all of it went the way of the dodo bird and it was replaced by syndicated repeats and lower cost acquisitions. So that's probably going to happen at the CW, too. We've already kind of seen some of that, too, with after all of this year's big wave of cancellations. Remember, Julie Pleck described it as the Red Wedding at the CW, and that was accurate because they, for the first time in more than a decade, canceled more shows than they renewed. So you're going to you're already seeing some low-cost Canadian and other foreign imports line the schedule to help make up for those slots that used to go to U.S. originals but have been pulled back because, well, the financial, the business model for those didn't really work anymore. So I'm rambling here with this segment, Dan. What do you want to know? What 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 do you have have to add? I you know I'm just sort of curious about what the what it's actually long term going to mean and what it's going to mean in terms of demographics and if basic and so what it comes down to is kind of what did you what did they purchase in this case and if the goal is going to be to get the CW away from what its roots have been, which have been young skewing, female skewing, uh, et cetera, diverse skewing for years. And for the record, it hasn't really been female skewing for a long time. That was something that Pedo had sought out to change and did with the, with all of the DC shows. Uh, but like, so what, what is it at the end of the day that they've purchased if they're changing it? But yeah. Well, they're basically going to turn it into a full-fledged broadcast network that caters to an adult demographic and it'll probably have look look so, somewhat similar to what WGN America did and it's you know after it was sold so probably some remaining originals that we know that that Paramount and Warner Brothers will continue to supply some of that um and obviously they can provide plenty more if that's the way that the ownership wants to run it 
But in the in the immediate future, it's cost cutting. They want to make the network profitable by 2025. It's important to note that the CW has never been profitable, and that's by design. It was not created to be a profitable network. It was created to be a moneymaker for its parent companies, CBS Studios and Warner Brothers. And as we've talked about on the show a couple of other times since January, when you lose foreign sales and international sales, and you're not able to sell that content around the world because you're keeping that for your own streaming platforms. And you're, and the same is true for not selling your, you know, the U.S. streaming rights to Netflix because you want that for Paramount Plus or HBO Max. When you lose those two revenue streams, the business model of the CW just doesn't make sense anymore. And that's why it was sold. So now you're going to start to look at the same some of these same financial equations as if they're going to pick up a show from an outside studio, well, all of them are outside studios really at this point when if you've got the two remaining parent companies at 12.5% each, you know, you're going to be arguing over things like streaming rights, like when do you get those for your app, et cetera. So basically what they're getting is a, a huge digital footprint, a very well-known brand, a lot of library programming, because if you look at what's on CWC, they're constantly adding content from all over the place. It's a free platform. So yeah, and plus it's going to have a, a huge advertising reach, which is part of the big reason that they bought it. I, I just get stuck on the it was never intended to make profit stuff because in my mind it kind of makes uh, the CW into an extended version version of the producers and I and that makes me chuckle. There's there's nothing there's nothing substantive to add beyond that. I just kind of like the idea of the CW as always having been a a gaping pit that people kept throwing programming into and occasionally threw really good programming into. So yay that we got shows like. Jane the Virgin and Crazy Ex-Girlfriend and whichever of the DC shows you happen to like the most, et cetera, et cetera. Kind of remarkable when a strange business model actually accidentally or on purpose yields entertaining art. So, yay. yeah. And at the same time, look at how many showrunners cut their teeth on uh, by getting an opportunity at the CW where they may may not have been had that opportunity elsewhere. Right. I mean, look at the, the, the world that Julie Pleck has created to name one, for example. Or, so. I mean, or, or the oft discussed Greg Berlanti, who has shepherded in heaven knows how many TV shows with how, heaven knows how many writers of, of varying degrees of experience, some with no credits whatsoever, uh, you know, and, and personal ties to the podcast and all of that. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, no, I, and I, I, I saw a lot of people talking about it all, this, that exact point on Twitter is, is the fact that they had all of those shows and they had all of those shows that were doing 22 episodes per season in, in that sort of old retro way of doing episodic television that we may or may not ever see again outside of Dick Wolf and, you know, things like that. And the shows, because they skewed young and because they skewed inclusive, it meant that you were bringing all of those different writers to the table and you were bringing all of those different writers together and they were get, all getting credits and all of that, it, you know, when you when you think about it in those terms, it, it becomes such an absolute good that at times what the CW did was. And so I, I hope that I, I do hope that that's not just bulldozed and moved aside so that they can put on generic old skewing programs, because otherwise it yeah, it it would just be sort of tragic if the CW just became CBS Junior or 
WGN America Jr. Hey, you know, if that brings back something like Underground, I'm not going to complain about that because, yeah, WGN had Underground. They had Manhattan. Right, but that was a more, but those were more expensive shows than pretty much anything the CW puts on at this point. Absolutely, which is in large part why they no longer exist or why they existed for two seasons apiece in those two cases. Uh yeah, it's, you know, so it's, I think it's, I think it's definitely too soon to view this as being a very sad loss to our ecosystem or our landscape, but, you know, it's, it's definitely one that you want to pour out a little from your 40 on behalf of. Absolutely. And, you know, if what we've seen from the, the cor- corporate landscape in the past couple of years is any indicator, there will probably be some layoffs to come as they look at at what's working, what's not working and what they already have. So, yeah, enjoy the coming season while you can, because who knows what the CW will look like afterwards. So up next, speaking of layoffs. Number two. Casey Bloys ended weeks of outrageous speculation as the HBO and HBO Max exec revealed a corporate restructuring that includes a 14% reduction in staff or about 70 people. Among the departments that are being affected, we already talked a lot about the unscripted group led by Jennifer O'Connell at HBO Max. HBO Max is, of course, going to be integrated with Discovery+. Plus. The two services will launch a combined streaming service in summer 2023. All of that unscripted content from Discovery is going to be included. You already have scores of executives who have been doing that under David Zaslav and his teams for a, for a long time. That said, looking at, at, at efforts to reduce $3 billion in cost savings and to create $3 billion in cost savings, that's a big redundancy. So the unscripted group is going to go away. We talked about the Gordita Chronicles and the cancellation and what that meant. So that means HBO Max's kids and family group is also going away because that's as what they have per their data, I, I guess, is they've realized that kids and family content that that is brand new, like Gordita Chronicles, doesn't cut through. Instead, people are going to look at existing franchises. Well, that makes a lot of sense. Casting department. Well, HBO already has one of those. So does HBO Max need one? No. International acquisitions. Both of those groups are going to be folded under HBO Max head of original Sarah Aubrey. Aubrey will continue to be with HBO Max. She will continue to oversee Max's original dramas. But the executive who, of course, came over from TNT and wound up at HBO Max because of Kevin Riley, and when he added HBO Max to his portfolio, he basically handed his development team the same their same roles and expanded their purviews. So Sarah is now losing comedy. Instead, Amy Gravitt, the well-liked com- head of comedy at HBO under Casey Bloys, will oversee Hacks and all the other HBO Max original comedies, as well as HBO comedies. So Sarah Aubrey, of course, gets international and acquisitions. Both of those will continue to be overseen by either Sarah Aubrey or Amy Gravitt based on whatever genre of show that they're looking to buy. So this is a lot to to digest here, Dan. And when you take a sort of step back from it, I mean, I guess, you know, there were there were all of the alarmist conversations a couple weeks ago and people throwing out figures like 70% reductions in uh, nope, Casey Boyce's stuff. Yeah, and instead obviously, you you could sort of wonder and be generous and be like, ooh, someone heard there was going to be 70 people, but no, people were saying 70%, which is a different which is a different creature. Uh, Very different story. But, but still, this is 
this is obviously not good. Anytime there are, you know, large numbers of layoffs, not good. Are there any indications of what this means in terms of programming? Because there were a lot of talk. There was, again, going back again to the alarmist speculation, there was talk about how HBO Max originals were basically going to cease to exist. And, th- and that at least appears not, not to be. Well, that is what I'm saying. It appears that that is not the case because you do not have Sarah Aubrey at the head of the department that is going to no longer be producing things. So, Right. So now you've got... HBO and HBO Max have a merged comedy department, and that's because a lot of the Max comedies were kind of similar in tone to what HBO does. So you have one executive overseeing a merged comedy department and two different executives, Sarah Aubrey for HBO Max and Francesca Orsi for HBO proper overseeing drama, respectively. So they didn't fully integrate the development teams, kind of just did it by genre where it made sense, which good for Casey for recognizing that. And at at the same time, what it means for the programming, well, aside from a slightly different executive structure, nothing. You know, HBO is not going to become a tile on Discovery Plus. Discovery Plus is not going to become a tile on HBO Max. This is going to be a big monster service that has both front and center. That's the entire reason Discovery bought Warner Brothers because they wanted the content. You look at what we've t- how how often we've talked about Disney and and the Fox acquisition and what that did and how that supersized an already magnificent company like Disney. And I'm not, not praising Disney by calling it magnificent. I'm talking about the sheer volume of content and IP that they have. So it's the same idea, right? You've got two uh, one already powerhouse company with a ton of IP and and showrunners and infrastructure buying a ton of other assets to really supersize it. And that's exactly what's going to happen here. So, and just like that, Sex Lives of College Girls, all these other shows that HBO Max has created and launched successfully, that's not going anywhere. That's going to be part of the backbone of this service. What is being debated, I hear, is what the name of the service will be. And I hear that uh, a big part of the logic is you know, some people want to keep HBO in the title because of it's a, a brand of, that represents quality, but th- also th- there's also a debate about if they ditch it and go with something a little bit broader. So I don't know what what they're going to call it, but they they have a lot of time to figure that out. And it was always, you know, we've we've already grown accustomed to it, and that is the great thing about any time anything changes is that you can complain about it extensively, and then maybe you get used to it, or in some cases you remain confused about it forever, like whatever's happening with FX on Hulu. Uh, but yeah, or you just make fun of it and make weird voices like freebie. Indeed. Uh, so, but I do. But you know, I recall when HBO Max was announced as the title of the Warner Brothers service, there was some concern about what it said about the HBO brand and if that really was representative of the full scope of the HBO brand. and whether Yeah, I mean, it, yeah. nothing screams HBO like Pretty Little Liars or Gossip Girl, right? That's not, those are not HBO shows. So, but then again, does Discovery, you know, does a lot of the content from Discovery Plus scream HBO? It's a great it's a great debate. And I would love to hear some of the to be a fly on the wall for those conversations. I assume that they are both in boardrooms in uh, in Burbank and then also those little hidey holes in Las Vegas where people are asking regular people to give their opinions on different names. I would not be surprised if right next to the place where they're screening uh, the new Quantum Leap on NBC, someone has a list of 75 names that they're reading to tourists from Omaha. So, yeah. Yeah, free, free form, free V Max Plus. No, it definitely tells me Disco something. Max. 
Disco, Disco Max? Max Plus. HBO Disco Plus. I don't know. I'm just making sure. I'm just going to sit back and let you just do this for a half hour if you've, if you've got ideas. And Come then on, Dan. They, let's hear your ideas. No, no, no. I'm, I'm perfectly happy to let you take uh, 100% credit when you accidentally hit on whatever the actual <laughs> answer is. Uh, There's no way I'm going to hit on what the actual eventual name of well, the Well, I don't is. think that's actually true, given, how, given the lack of creativity on so many of these different uh, brands. How many times do you think you would have had to have guessed on names to come up with Disney Plus? Yeah, I mean, everyone kind of got that one, I think, right? I, I think if Same you sit with here, Paramount Plus, people guess that one. I think if you sit here for three or four more minutes, you'll eventually come up with it. Uh, so HBO Discovery Plus seems like about the simplest and least creative solution. That's a mouthful. Possible. Sure, I didn't say it was a good suggestion. <laughs> I just said it was an idea that isn't really an idea because I put two words together and put plus in front of it. And whoever would think that someone in marketing would get paid for that? Maybe they'll just call it HD, like HBO and Discovery, and then mean meaning high def or some shit like that. Ooh, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, the work for CW, right? That the, that's a network name that made sense. I mean, at first, you know, it was after calling it the WB Network and naming it after the studio. It, it made some sense. So, yeah, DH plus instead, because then you'll have confusion with HD and. Anyway, this is not we have no we have ceased to be having an interesting conversation on this subject. I think it's not I our fault. So incident. It's not our fault. Incidentally, maybe I think we need vacations, Dan. I was going to say maybe Tuesdays are just tough for us. I don't know. God, uh, <laughs> who knew? Well, in any event, let's let's look for some structure with our next segment. Up next. Number three. Let's go to the mailbag. A reminder, if you have questions, we've got answers. If you email us at TV's top five at the numeral five at THR.com. Up first, Libby emails from New Zealand. She just really wants Dan to talk about the season finale of Evil for a few minutes. So, Dan, have at it. I'm happy to do that. Uh, I'm going to try to avoid spoiling it because I want everyone to watch the season finale of Evil and the uh entire third season of evil and possibly the second season of evil which was in my top 10 for last year or maybe the first season of evil which was on cbs and some people checked out early on because they weren't necessarily sure if they wanted to be watching a cbs procedural so evil's a really good show it is a show that i really really enjoy and the third season i thought was pretty consistent and pretty consistent in how it accentuated a lot of the varied things that the show does so some of the episodes were really, really genuinely scary. I would say, in fact, that the home stretch of the season was among the more viscerally disturbing things that the show has ever done. I thought a lot of the things that the show did with uh, with Kristen and the ongoing stuff with her with her missing embryo, I, I thought it was often genuinely harrowing. And I thought Katja Herbers did a great job of uh, playing the wide range of things she was asked to do. They ran her through the ringer and I, th I thought she was exceptional. I think depend depending on how the year goes, maybe I'll be talking about her need for an Emmy nomination come next year, even if it's a long shot because Emmy voters apparently don't notice that the show exists. On the other hand, the show is also tremendously funny. I am not going to spoil the finale in any tangible way, except to say that there is an extended scene with Andrea Martin with a shovel killing demons. And if that is not a thing that you find an incentive to watch, then you and I are different people, and that is a totally acceptable thing. Um, but yes, so Andrea Martin with a shovel killing demons, absolutely hilarious, 
brilliant work, and I kind of love the idea of pitching Andrea Martin on that particular scene. I can only imagine that was a really, really fun conversation to have. But the show also continued to do really great work with all of with all of the young actresses who play the main character's daughter. I think that they have all um you know they they've begun to mature and the show has been very smart about actually finding a way to give a couple of them standalone storylines of their own in addition to the always entertaining scenes where they just talk over each other for several minutes which are really and truly my favorite parts of that show so yeah look 10 episodes is a really short season and it's a really short season when you've been accustomed to expecting more because somewhere in, in a vestigial organ in your body, you remember that evil was once a CBS show. So you think, Hmm, wouldn't it be nice if it had, if it had 22 episodes, I, I trust the Kings and I trust that they feel like 10 episodes is the right number. And the season started off with them keeping kind of in the 46, 47 minute range. And towards the end of the season, episodes were closer to 51, 52 minutes. Either way, it doesn't matter. The show has its own rhythms, its own freakiness and creepiness. And it's definitely not for everybody because it is a scary, somewhat disturbing show. And the stuff and the stuff with Kristen this season, I think was disturbing in a, a more realistic way. I can imagine that for some viewers, that's the kind of thing that would be very difficult to watch and they wouldn't want to. And I don't begrudge that as a preference at all, but yes, evil's a show. I really like people should check it out. It is scary. It is extremely funny. Yay, evil. So, anyway, our next listener is Moritz, who writes from Germany. In the wake of the Warner Brothers Discovery Axe falling on Max Features, Batgirl, and Scooby, is there any are there any examples of scrapped pilots and or shows ever being leaked? And what are the chances, Leslie, of something like this happening with Batgirl or Scooby? I would say the chances of this happening with Batgirl and Scooby is slim to none. Um, look, Warner Brothers Discovery wants to take the tax write off on these. So that means that no one is good, that they're intentionally not releasing this. And usually the way that things leak is there are press screenings or uh, pilot screenings or DVDs or things that are sent out to reps for viewing or test audiences and stuff like that on the TV front. That's typically the way things leak. And, you know, in this case, at least we know that um, that Batgirl, I don't think they were completely done with posts, so it wasn't even finished. It's not like they were going to be sending out links or viewing stuff to anyone, whether it was reps or anyone else. So that's probably in a vault. I have no idea where Scoob was with that. I mean, I would say if one of them is going to leak, it's probably going to be Scoob is, it, because I think that one was animated and a lot of that, those files kind of tend to be distributed electronically. So yeah, I would say slim to none, but there are some some things that leak. Um, you remember Amazon's pilot process? They didn't even leak that. They actually posted those and let, and, and quote unquote, let the audience pick, which was, of course, a lot, a load of horseshit. But, um, it's a fun story because it always makes me think, you know, whenever I talk about busted pilots or, or things that these networks or streamers and studios spent millions of dollars on, I always used to joke that my, my big party joke was that they should launch a network or a streaming service called Canceled TV, where you get all the great one and dones, all the busted pilots and all of those things live forever, but you can't recoup money via tax write-offs if you release anything officially. So I would say, again, chances are slim to none that Batgirl or Scoob makes it, an appearance. But uh, yeah, if you look, you know, 
if you look hard enough, you can find some really, really great busted pilots on YouTube. I remember watching uh, Ryan Murphy's brilliant FX pilot, Pretty Handsome, on YouTube. I think I found it. It was translated and it was in three different links, but I eventually pieced it all together and watched the whole thing. It was fantastic. And then somewhere in my DVD collection, I have a copy of David E. Kelly's Wonder Woman uh, pilot for, that he did for NBC, which, woof. And then uh, I think my other favorite busted pilot that I have is uh, County, which was the medical uh, drama from Jason Kadams, which look that one up. That one should have been uh, should have been greenlit because look at that cast. Michael B. Jordan, a couple other greats, greats in that one. But uh, yeah, to answer the question, I would say no chance. Very slim to little of Batgirl or Scooby leaking. But uh, look around for, for some great canceled TV stuff on YouTube. The other alternative, though, that I would at least mention, because, you know, you're talking about how these things end up getting percolated out there, is that every once in a while, you get a disgruntled creator who decides that it's a thing they want to do to get the show or yeah, whatever. Yeah, or they post a deleted there. scene, etc. So, like, the, the example I always give was HBO had a, a pilot, uh, 12 Miles of Bad Road, uh, which was from Linda Bloodworth Thompson, and it had a really, really good cast. Lily Tomlin, Mary-Kate Place, uh, Leslie Jordan, and HBO decided not to air it. And I believe it was Linda Bloodworth Thompson's people. I don't know how directly it was her, but someone associated with the show on the creative side of things sent many critics, most critics, whatever, the entire run of the series on DVD and said, look, we'd love for you to give this a look. We think this is a really good show. If you if you want to write something about it, that's fine. If you don't, that's fine also. But, you know, here's the thing that we did. We want someone to see it. So I, I think there's a very, very, very large gap between that example and somebody doing the same thing with Batgirl. <laughs> I think that's a rather huge gap. But on the other hand, that would just be yeah, a there's different. There's a lot of legal trouble if, oh, in that God. case. I think. I think yes. That that the the people who were tracked down as being responsible for it would never work in this town again, or would at least have lawsuits hanging over their head. But on the other hand, the people associated with those movies are pissed off, and I, you know, who knows? I, I but would there, not. And it's one thing to be pissed off, but it's another thing to be pissed off and, and have fuck you money. And oh, sure. I don't think anyone in, in who, who worked on Batgirl really has fuck you money. So yeah. if this was like Ryan Murphy saying, you know, you you know, at this point in his career, oh, you didn't pick up my pilot. I'm going to slip it. And I'm going to tweet a link to it or something. Yeah, he's got fuck you money. You know, uh, it, he, will he will that affect him in the long term? No. Will it piss off execs? Yeah, sure. But he's Ryan Murphy. He'll still work. But will this work with, with unproven writer directors who don't have that kind of the financial resources that Orion Murphy has? No, they're not going to leak that themselves. They're going to be, that would completely screw them. Plus the and lawsuits would be insane. It, it, and that's, and that's just where it is. I mean, just the difference, the difference between how much HBO would have cared about 12 miles of good road getting written up by a critic is significantly less than uh, HBO Max slash Warner Brothers slash DC caring if someone somehow got a copy. Yeah, of and she girl. may have gotten, you know, and she may have gotten a consent from executives at HBO to go ahead and send that out. 
Entirely you know? possible. I mean, it, cause, cause that's they obviously definitely a possibility, but in this case, Warner Brothers owns this IP, and they own the, they've paid for all of this stuff that they're already losing money on because, by not releasing it, and that's why they're claiming it as a tax write-off. So if they wanted to release it just for shits and giggles, or to appease creators or actors or talent or whoever, it's not going to work, because they have to take, they, they want the tax write-off. So anyway, up next, UC writes... I would love a review of the last season of Better Call Saul and a discussion why it did not even come close to be the water cooler sensation that Breaking Bad was. Was it just because Breaking Bad was so revolutionary in its storytelling when it came out and now we're used to that? Is it because it's less high stakes and more subtle in its plot than Breaking Bad? Dan, this is you. I think those are I think those are good answers, uh, honestly. I, I think that absolutely Breaking Bad was more revolutionary when it came out and better call Saul is absolutely a more subtle show though you know it's the same creative team so it has some things about it that are not hugely subtle as well and also it's still a show that had plenty of shootouts involving drug cartels and extended suspense sequences that are as good as anything ever on television so but but I think those I, I think those things do matter. I, I think that there was nervousness when it came out, and the nervousness played a role in kind of a muted initial response that people simply just weren't sure what it was going to be. And I think that the initial critical response to the show was not negative. This was not one of those situations with a prequel spinoff, whatever, where critics came out, they, you know, guns a blazing to tear it to pieces for not being breaking bad. I think initial responses were largely admiring of what the show was doing, not being breaking bad, but that isn't quite the same as being over the moon rapturous. And so, yeah, but, but I think the nature of the shows are simply very, very, different and uh it, our colleague angie han and i did a back and forth about the finale and and we touched on this i think it is always going to be true that a show that is primarily a semi-comic thriller where the pitch is you know mr chips becomes scarface but still once you throw scarface in there it's an easy easy hook and i think that it gave people a lot of stuff to be highly entertained by. And you go and you watch the finale for Breaking Bad. It's an, it's an all-time great, uh, not finale, sorry. You go and watch the premiere, rather, the pilot for Breaking Bad, the Vince Gilligan written and directed pilot. And it's, it, it's an all-time classic. And it's a classic with, with tremendous suspense. It's just, it's very, very hooky. Whereas when you actually step back, and having actually now watched the entire journey of Better Call Saul, it has some of those same elements. It has some of the same thriller elements, some of the same suspense, cartel, drug dealer, all of that elements. And then there was the initial thought that it might actually kind of be a legal procedural. There, That was the initial thing that everyone was joking about, is it's going to be Saul Goodman handling a case a week in Albuquerque, and that's going to be what the show is going to be. And hence, at that point, there was even the speculation it might be a half-hour show and all of that. What the show ended up being is a relationship melodrama with suspense thriller aspects in the background. And that's just always going to be less, I don't know, it's going to be less water coolery. And, and it comes down also to when we approached the finale, 
I think the finale of Breaking Bad, when people reached that finale, there was all of that speculation. There was the who's going to live, who's going to die, what's going to happen with this seeded plot element, what's going to happen with that seeded plot element. And the thing that's fascinating about Better Call Saul is that when it came time for the finale, you didn't see that same run of... 25 questions Better Call Saul needs to answer in its finale or uh, shady online betting sites setting up odds on 10 characters most likely to die in the in the Better Call Saul finale. It wasn't that kind of show ultimately. And so people tuned into the finale and the questions were and I'm going to really try to not spoil anything about this, but the questions really were about redemption. They were about identity. They were about what the state of things with uh, Saul, Gene, Jimmy, and Kim Wexler was going to end up being, with nobody particularly thinking the show was likely to end up with them sitting on a beach together as a happy married couple, watching their two kids play in the surf or anything like that. People went into the finale actually curious what the resolution to the show was going to be. And I think that that's a recipe for significantly less buzz because people didn't need things out of it. People weren't on the verge of being angry if somebody died in the wrong way or if God only knows what. And I know some people almost certainly didn't like the Better Call Saul finale, but most of the reaction I've seen has been very, very positive. But most of that positivity has been about kind of the idea that the ending that the show reached was emotionally satisfying. And that's just never going to be the same as did it solve the mystery we've been unveiling for six seasons or did the bad guy get shot by a by a machine gun in the middle of a gunfight with a group of Nazis? It's just never going to be the same kind of thing. And so it's the same reason that I, I you know, I'm not I'm not going to play the which game is which show is better game because the shows are very, very different and both exceptional in their own way. And I don't care if it makes me wishy-washy to say that. They're both great shows that did different things. Period. Full stop. So anyway, I think that's, I think that's an answer to, to the question. Uh, and yeah, and uh, the, the first part was a review of the last season of Better Call Saul. It was a great last season of Better Call Saul. It was, it was full of emotionally satisfying moments, full of great beats for all of the actors. Uh, the addition of Carol Burnett for the last half season was, was just wonderful and made everybody so, so happy. And, you know, now we're going to have to deal with the fact that they got her into too many episodes in the second half of the season. And so, is there going to be some sort of gamesmanship that's going to allow them to get her positioned as a, as a guest actress for Emmy consideration when, according to the basic mathematical rules that they've set, she's a supporting actress, which means that she has to go head-to-head with Ray Seahorn unless they move Ray Seahorn up to lead, which they really should, as I've discussed many times. But, yeah, great, great final season, full of great moments, and... Uh, yeah, just a just a pleasure to have gotten to enjoy that show, and I will miss it. And wrapping up mailbags, I know we got a, a question um, about this some time ago, but I can't for the life of me find it in my email. But so 
to answer to whomever wrote inquiring about the status of the Buffy the Vampire Slayer reboot that was announced or put in development back in 2018. Executive producer Gail Berman recently told our colleague in front of the five, Katie Kilkenny, that it is, quote, on pause, which is industry speak for purgatory. So make of that what you will. And a reminder, if you have more TV cues, we've got A's. If you email us at TV's top five, that's the number five at THR.com. Up next, it's time for our showrunner spotlight segment. Number four. Our guest this week is Chris Estrada, the co-creator and star of Hulu's new comedy, This Fool. Before This Fool, Estrada's credits included stand-up comedy and a number of guest appearances on shows, including corporate. Welcome to the podcast, Chris. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So let's start here with the origin story. And I think you've told this a, a couple of times now. So this show obviously kind of started four years ago with you getting a call from Fred Armisen during a lunch break from a warehouse job. What yeah. was the setup for the call? Take us through to the, to the, to the very first uh, origins of the show. The origins of the show is I'm a stand-up comedian here in Los Angeles. I started at the tail end of 2013. And I was doing stand-up, and at that same time, there was a guys that had been doing stand-up a few years before me, and they had a TV show on Comedy Central called Corporate. This was uh, Jake Weissman, Matt Ingebrigtsen, and Pat Bishop, who was the director of the show. And um, I knew them from the stand-up scene. And, um, you know, I was doing stand-up probably four to five years in. I was getting some some little industry notoriety. I was showcasing for Comedy Central, showcasing for JFL, going out of town on the weekends. But I was still working a regular job. I was working at a warehouse. And, you know, comedy doesn't pay until it pays. So what ended up happening was just working my job. And then I received a text from um, Jake Weissman, who let me know that they were producing comedies now. And if I had any ideas and I was like, yeah, well, I think I could come up with something. <laughs> you know, I was like, uh, I, I like to imagine that it's like, that I would text back and be like, you know, I really like this warehouse job. I think I'm going to see, I'm going to see it through, <laughs> you know. But I said, yeah, I, I, I have a few ideas because I was interested in TV writing, you know. And I was interested in writing narrative and whatnot. And so I met with them and we started developing a show together. And they said, I said, well, what do you guys have in mind in terms of direction? And they said, well, what about something sort of influenced by your life? And I said, okay, cool. And then I went off and thought about a few things and came up with a general premise. And then we started working on it together. And, you know, we were kind of dead in the water for a few months for like, I would say a few, like six months. I don't think we were able to get pitches or anything. And they were working on their final season of corporate and out of the blue, Jake Weissman sends me a text and says, hey, would you be okay with us sending this treatment to Fred Armisen's manager? And I, do you like him? Is that okay? And I was like, even if I hated the guy, send it to him. <laughs> you know, <laughs> But um, they sent it to him, and, and you know, it helps that I, I'm a fan of his. And um, they sent it to him. But I really thought to myself, it'll be like months before we hear back. And... To his credit, we heard a week later, he emailed us and said, hey, I really like this. Uh, I'd love, let's talk on the phone. And that's, I had to take a, I took a lunch break from my warehouse job to go from unloading trucks to go talk to him on the phone. And uh, that was pretty surreal because, you know, you know, what's, well, what's surreal about it is your lunch break is over at some point and you have to go back to work. 
So it that's like, and nobody really knew I was a comedian at work. I didn't really talk about it. You know, I didn't tell many people. Actually, I don't think any of them knew. Uh, it's odd. This guy just messaged me and said, hey, don't I know you from this warehouse? And then I go, yeah. He goes, I didn't even know you did this. And I go, yeah, I don't really didn't want to talk about it. But um, yeah, it was really surreal to talk to him. And then from there, Fred jumped on as an executive producer. And he was very helpful and generous with his time. And he said, what do you guys need from me in terms of help? And we said, would you be willing to go with us to pitch meetings? And he said, yeah, sure. And then he went to with us to pitch meetings, which was really like a cool, helpful thing to do. But wait, so you you have this conversation, this life changing conversation. You don't necessarily know it's life changing, but maybe you sense somewhere that it's life changing. And then you go back to work. You don't mention to any of your coworkers, man, you are not going to believe that phone call that I just had. No, I don't mention. I mean, I, I think I tell my girlfriend and my like my other comedian friends, but my coworkers, I was like, nah, it's like, you know, it was a warehouse where everybody kept to themselves. Everybody had headphones on and everybody was like working. So kind of people kept to themselves. And I was like, ah, they don't care about my stuff. Like, you know, it's work. And then like, if I told them that they would be like, yeah, dude, but we got to unload this truck. Like, you know, it's like, so I get it. Like if I took the time to like tell them we all had a job to do. It's like, yeah, that's, that's great, dude. But come on, let's get back to work. You know? Yeah. So, so Fred came with you on the, on the pitch meetings. When did Hulu sign on and how many places did you wind up taking it? And what was the response like? Oh, we went to, we went to eight places, uh, or seven. And then, you know, the response was a little, Oh, cool. Fred, Fred Armisen. Amazing. The guys from corporate, that show had a lot of critical buzz and acclaim. And they were like, cool, we know of this show. And they looked at me and said, I felt it was always, who are you? <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and, you know, I, I don't blame them for that. Like I was just a co- I'm just a stand-up comic and I, you know, I had some industry buzz, but I was by no mean a name or anything. And, um, that, w- that was a little bit of it. And sometimes when we pitched the show, we worked really hard. We wrote a pitch that we that we did like five drafts of it. And eventually people sometimes I think were a little confused by the show. They were they couldn't rep. You know, we pitched it as Friday, but directed by the Coen brothers. So <laughs> we said, you know, it takes place in South Central Los Angeles. So it has a Friday element to it. But just imagine it being directed by the Coen brothers. And we were really inspired by the movie Serious Man. So we just kept saying, imagine if like Serious Man and Friday met. And that doesn't make sense to anyone but us. <laughs> and, you know, they were like, but when we went to when we went to Hulu, we had previously met with them in, individually just for like general meetings. And then um they had a context for it, like, and they were really big fans of those guys. And we had a really big supporter there. This I met with this guy like maybe eight months ago. His name was Rob Gotti. He's an executive at Hulu. And we hit it off really well. And he was a big supporter of the project and said, I hope you guys come and pitch here. So it was really helpful to walk in with Fred Armisen. I mean, I remember when we would walk in with him, people would look like, oh, wow. They're <laughs> and he was so nice. He was like, he, we would do our pitch and he would sort of end the pitch by saying, I really believe in this project. This is why. And he would give his little spiel and it was great. It was really cool. 
so you give the pitch as Friday meets Serious Man. What questions did people ask you? And and did they seem like smart and perceptive questions, or were people asking you really dumb questions about this? No, they were they were asking pretty perceptive questions, or at least questions that are like thoughtful questions where they were like maybe trying to make sense of it. They were just like, okay, so where does the serious man Coen Brothers aspect of it come in? And we were like, you know, sort of aesthetically, aesthetically. And we, we really pushed the fact that we, that the corporate guys, uh, Matt Ingebrigtsen, Jake Weissman and Pat Bishop, their show corporate had a very cinematic element to it. And a very, a very like almost David Fincher for a half hour, you know, and we kept saying, well, we want to approach this as a film. And we, we come from the idea that comedies should look, deserve to look cinematic. And th- that, and we also kept saying like the humor might feel a little offbeat the way it does in serious man or raising Arizona. And there'll be some sense of like heightened reality or, or surrealism, nothing major, but you know, things that add to that nature. And yeah, that and, and so that's what they would ask. And then they would go, okay, and they would ask, now explain this nonprofit to us. And then we would explain this nonprofit that exists in the show called Hugs Not Thugs. And, you know, I told them, I said, you know, I, I'm inspired by a few real-life nonprofits that exist that do similar work. And I want to try to differentiate ourselves because I don't want to copy those places because they exist and they do really good work. But I thought to myself, what if we're like a righteous place, but we're, we're not, we're the fifth largest gang rehabilitation center in Los Angeles. We're not, we're struggling, you know? And so, yeah, they kept asking the details of that. And they were like, so this is a workplace sitcom. And I said, no, this is, you're kind of, it navigates between personal life and work life. Cause that's what we really like is we didn't want to have a traditional workplace sitcom and we didn't want to have a traditional guy only at home. You know, it was a it was a single camera show and we wanted it to feel edgy and cool and cinematic and the way that new comedies feel like, you know, but except the difference is we wanted to go for hard jokes. We wanted to make sure that the show felt funny in kind of the age of dramedies. We wanted to make sure that the jokes were really hard. And so where in the process of all of this did you finally quit the warehouse job? I would say when they made Hulu made an offer, I think I worked there for a few more months because, you know, that money stuff takes its time. And then so I think I probably worked there till the possibly right up before COVID, right? Like right up until COVID, like 2020, maybe around there. But I was also doing I was doing stand-up a lot on the road and I was going out on nothing major. You know, I was just getting like, uh, I was getting like, I was featuring or for stand-up comedians or going or doing one-nighters on my own and stuff like that. But were they surprised? Like, did you actually tell your boss, okay, I'm not just quitting, I'm quitting for this? Or was it just one of those, yeah, another option came up, see ya, (laughs) kind of things? You know, I have, I think I have such working class guilt that I've, and that I feel like a douchebag. (laughs) So I was just like, this feels like a cliche to me. I just said, you know, I'm just going to tell them I got a full-time job somewhere else. (laughs) I just, 
I just felt like if I tell them, hey, I got a TV show, they might be like, great, get out of here. We need to fill in this position, you know? I always just think to myself, like, this is special to me, but I realize that people have their own lives and their own work and stuff like that. And yeah. And and now that the show has been out for a little while, um, are you getting recognized? How has your life changed? Yeah, that was really weird. I got... You know, I, w- I was recognized sometimes be- via stand-up. It happened a few times, but, you know, not that much. And then I got recognized. The first time I got recognized for the show, the show wasn't out yet. Somebody had seen the trailer. And I was I was at this place waiting for a burrito. And somebody just said, hey, are you the guy from This Fool? And I said, huh? And I said, oh, yeah, yeah. I go, you know, the show's not even out yet. That's like a, that's that's just a trailer. And I, and he said, Oh no, no, I saw you in the preview. And then I felt there's two trailers. There's a market, there's the trailer that the marketing department made. And there's the trailer that me and the showrunners made. And I, I, the one they made the marketing department, it's okay, but I really love the one we made. So I just remember he saw the one, the marketing department made. And I said, Oh, you know, we have another trailer coming out. Uh, August 4th, I think that trailer is a little more nuanced and interesting and really lends it. I found myself talking to him and he just looked at me and he goes, oh, I don't know. I just thought it was funny. <laughs> and I said, yes, that's right. He it was like the polar care. opposite of the warehouse story. <laughs> yeah, yeah, total polar opposite. I was just like explaining to him, oh, there's another trailer coming out that I really love. And I think it really represents the show a little better and a little more cinematically. And I was found myself going on a little bit of a diatribe and he was just staring at me like, oh, I, I, I don't know, dude. I just like the trailer. I whatever. He's <laughs> <laughs> like, how do I get out of this? <laughs> yeah. Where's my burrito? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. And then been getting recognized a few times ever since then. It's really, it's really nice. I mean, the whole getting recognized thing is not a thing that's like, it's a little odd, but if people tell me that they like the show, that's really flattering. Or, or if they like the shows for the elements that I think make it special, that makes it even better. I mean, I, I think it's funny. And I also, as someone who's born and raised L.A., I love, it, you know, it almost does feel like a love letter to, to Southern California and Los Angeles. Yeah, I was trying to, when, they, when we were making it, I, I wanted to make a, you know, I think when most people think of a, Latinos in television shows set in LA, they, the, the default is East Los Angeles, you know, East LA, Boyle Heights. And, you know, I, I, I didn't grow up in those neighborhoods. I didn't grow up in East LA. You know, I spend a lot of time in Inglewood and South Central. And what was specific about those neighborhoods to me is that they're not, uh, uh, now more than ever, it's not a, it, it's not a homogenous neighborhood. It's, it's half Latino and half black. And, you know, as we're like, maybe a neighborhood like East LA is 98% Latino, you know? And so I, I thought to myself, that's really interesting. I, you know, I, I grew up with black neighbors and I grew up with going to school with black kids. And, you know, sometimes there is a kind of a cross, cross-cultural mix or like sometimes we get along exceptionally well. And sometimes for whatever reasons, we might not get along. And I wanted to find a way to be like, how, that's interesting to me. Like, how do you, how do you make that funny? Like, how do you, you know, and also I saw this thing from this 
I think she's a professor, but her name is Wendy Cheng. She she wrote a she had a photo essay called uh, Black and Brown Los Angeles, and what she did was she took a lot of she she went to South like Compton, Inglewood, South Central, and she was taking a lot of pictures of black businesses next to Latino businesses, and she she was just kind of commenting on that through a photo essay. Where she would go to, like, if there was a mural somewhere in South Central and it was, like, a mural of the Virgen de Guadalupe, right, you know, next to it was a mural of Martin Luther King. And I just thought, yeah, that's interesting. I think, like, how do I, how do I show that? How do I show that without commenting on it? I just want to show it the way I know it to be. I, I don't want to put judgment on it in a good way or bad way. I just want to present it as life. Yeah, I mean, that also kind of brings me to a more timely question here. You know, in the TV landscape, it, it's been a little bit of a struggle lately looking at shows like Gordita Chronicles and ABC's Promised Land and even going back to One Day at a Time when it was on Netflix. You know, but Latino-themed shows have really struggled to to catch on or to find an audience. Why do you think it's been so challenging to cut through the clutter? And and why, why do these, some of these shows, even despite glowing reviews, mm-hmm. struggle to really make it? Yeah, you know, I don't know. I think I wonder for for me the way that I thought about doing it for our show was I thought to myself I don't want to look at this through the lens of identity. I want to look at it through the lens of class. You know, cuz that was I go, you know, people I just thought when not not as of recent, but for a lot of my life I was broke. <laughs> You know, and I was working class and my mom is just retired from being a janitor for 25 plus years. And, you know, uh, my father had made a very meager living and was a busboy and also worked construction throughout his job. So I just kept saying, well, what if what we're commenting is not necessarily identity, but class issues like not being able to fix your roof? you know, or showing people the way they live when they're working class. And, you know, I think that resonates with people. I, 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 at least, at least my experience, the messages I've been getting, I think it sort of resonates with people. So, yeah, I don't know. Cause I think those other shows were really good. Um, I, I'm not sure. I wish they did. I wish they were still on. Is that a distinction that you had to, explain either to your fellow collaborators or to the networks that you were pitching that you had to make clear, okay, here's the show that maybe you think we're making, but that's not the show I want to make. Yeah, that was, that was it. I let them know. I, you know, I was really inspired by this movie called killer of sheep. It was, you know, aside from Friday and stuff like that, there was this movie called killer of sheep. That's this old, old, beautiful movie about a working class family in Watts and this guy who has who suffers from depression and, and it's, he, he lives in this working class world where nobody understands his existentialism. And that's what we mirrored my character after like, and the idea of like being existential and people not really getting your existentialism or those surrounding you being like, I don't know, dude, I don't have time to think about everything. I have to work. And so we, we, we made sure that we, I told them, I said, you know, this show is going to be, um, at front and center, you're probably going to see a lot of Latino and black people in the show and others. And, 
you know, but we're, at least from my experience growing up where I've grown up, we're not always talking about hot button issues or we're not always talking about identity because when you're just around who you're around, you know what you are or you don't have to explain yourself. And I just thought, I just want to take a casual approach of like looking at what, how, how life, you know, how life is. I, I used to have this, I used to tell my friends the way I would explain it. And I don't live there anymore. I live with my girlfriend on, in like the East Hollywood, Los Feliz area. But I used to say, you know what's great about living in South Central is that, and this is not a bad thing or a judgment thing, I said, but nobody's talking about Lady Bird. And it was at the time where people kept talking about that film. And I said, you know, you're not inundated with this, with these hot button issues or, or there is hot button issues, of course, but they're talking about it through their lens of like class and race, you know? And I just wanted to look at that. And I, I felt like if we could have characters that felt like the people I grew up around and talk the way the people I grew up around with talk. And without judging that, I thought to myself, I think this might resonate. What was your point of entry for something like Killer of Sheep? Because, I, I mean, I feel like, I mean, it's a great movie. It's a classic movie. But mm -hmm. I also feel like there are plenty of people on, like, film Twitter and social media who haven't gotten around to their early Charles Burnett films. So, oh. so how did that come into your life? You know, I think I, when I was very young, I, I must have, when I was 17, I, I found out about the New Beverly Cinema. And this was... This was before Quentin Tarantino owned it. There was this, this, this older, I forget his name, Sherman, I think was his name. This older Jewish dude used to own the New Beverly Cinema. And his programming was phenomenal. Like, it was amazing, his programming. I, Tarantino's programming is good, but I really like Sherman's programming. And he, he just had, I one time went to go watch a movie, and they showed a trailer for an upcoming, you know, art house film that they were going to rescreen and it was killer of sheep. And I thought this, it, this looks beautiful. And then I said, wow, I've never, this is like Italian neorealism, but set in the black working class world of Watts. And then I, I, I had to go see it. I went to go see it and it blew me away. And I heard an interview with Charles Burnett and his take was, I just wanted to show the world without judgment, you know, and that was very exciting. So, you know, you know, you've mentioned that the show is kind of half family sitcom and half workplace comedy, mm. and it also kind of lets you play with the conventions of, of both of those genres. Uh, did you inevitably find yourself feeling a different personal collection to the family side? And how did that impact where you were able to find humor? No, I was trying to focus it really on Julio. I was trying to make sure that, it, it, you know, it's, it's only you only see the family because he lives at home. And, you know, he doesn't have a well-paying job. It's, I always told people, I go, I didn't live at home for a long time because I somehow loved my family. I lived at home because I was broke. And I wanted to make sure that it didn't feel like a family show. Like it just felt like we're seeing his family because he lives there. And we'll do those characters justice and give them stories, but it's because they live there. And, you know... I think a concern for me was I didn't want the show to feel like a family show because I think when people see Latinos in TV, there's this, there's this, um, there's this people default to these people are about family. 
And <laughs> I wanted to make sure we kind of stepped away from this noble peasant, all I got is my family thing. That's fair. Absolutely. How do you sort of cheat when you have that as your perspective? How do you avoid going into a, okay, here's what the stereotype is. We're going to go away from it at every point and just like keep your mind on here's the story we want to tell. Because obviously you don't just want to be going down a checklist and going, people think Latino families are like this, so we're going to be like this. There, there has to be yeah. something else you want to do there. Yeah, just kind of letting the stories naturally flow, like making sure like they, they kind of felt organic and not forced. Like, you know, or just kind of like highlighting things. Like I remember when we... We have an, a, an episode, uh, episode six, it's called Los Botes, which means the cans. Right? And um, that whole episode was kind of looking at the mom through this working class lens of like, she's a janitor and she steals office supplies and toilet paper from her job to take home. And looking at it through that lens of like, she's just a mom who's like, hey, I save a lot of money by stealing all this stuff from work. But what ends up happening is my character, Julio, catches a guy stealing the family's recycling. And I wanted to show that, you know, broke people, they don't really recycle, working class people, broke people, they don't really recycle for the good of the planet. They recycle because they like a recycling collection because you can get 50 bucks if you, 50 bucks if you have a good recycling collect, like a lot of recycling cans. And that's something I grew up doing. Like I remember as a kid with me and my grandma, we'd go pick cans on the street and like, so it was, I wanted to show that and show that the mom, even though they're working class, um, the fact that a homeless man is stealing their recycling angers her, you know? Yeah. I wanted to touch on, on the title of the show. Obviously this fool is singular, but at, at various points, the fool in question could almost be anybody on the show. Um, what did you learn about how many characters in a sitcom can be the fool at the same time? You know, I think just anybody. I think the thing is that we we wanted to make sure that nobody was flawless. You know, like nobody, even the Michael Imperioli character. I, I was not interested in writing a white savior character. And, he, you know, he's the only white he's the only white guy in the show. And I wanted to make sure that he. You know, I think sometimes when you see these white characters in TV shows that run maybe a nonprofit or are supposed to represent liberalism, they can either seem like white saviors or condescending. And I wanted to write a character that felt like an old school lefty who was kind of angry and flawed and felt very natural to the world. And I just thought if we make this guy as flawed as everyone else, it'll it his identity will fall back and you just see him as a person, you know, as though it, he won't stand out to you as the one white guy. He's, he's kind of as fucked up as everybody else in the show is. And, and you gave him an extremely large penis, but also made yeah. that into a curse. So, you know, yeah. <laughs> yes. yeah. yeah, it was, it was funny. We were trying to make sure to write an intelligent, funny show and not be scared of being extremely low brow. <laughs> Well, I want to talk, I, I do want to talk a little bit about that, but first I want to talk a little bit about the character of, of Julio, because he is, he is so very wonderfully flawed in some cases to some real extremes. I, I'm curious from your 
perspective, what the challenges are of wanting to protect a character who in a perfect world you might be playing for 10 more years and, you know, you want to be able to keep liking him while at the same time enjoying humiliating him or hanging him out to dry whenever possible. Yeah, it was making sure that he hangs himself out to dry, you know, is that, you know, he's sort of an existential guy who hates his birthday, not happy about where he is in life. You know, it was kind of seeing that character stand from Killer of Sheep and taking my own feelings of how I, you know, feeling existential or depressed. And I just thought to myself, that's really cool to show that in a way and making sure that he's not like some, he, he's not just being bullied. He's a guy that maybe makes his own problems like, you know, and he, and also that he's codependent, you know, that his his way of helping is not that altruistic. He's kind of a, he's a back patter. You know, he pats his own back. He's kind of looking for validation. And, you know, at one point he's helping this homeless guy in the neighborhood steal other people's recycling collection. And it's not because he cares about the guy. It's because the guy keeps telling him, you're, you're like a good guy though. And that's, he's, that's his kind of drug is being like, yeah, I guess I am kind of like a good guy, right? Like, you know, and it's, it's so not about altruism, you know, it's about this kind of selfish, like, uh, and I think a lot of it also dealt with um, looking at him like uh, his codependency and what codependency means, which is, you know, helping other people, going out of your way to help others in order to avoid your own problems, which, you know, is can be kind of dark and depressing and you know it's a little it, yeah i mean codependency is a real thing and I, I i in the past i saw myself doing that you know it's it's funny hearing you talk about the darkness of the show and the darkness mm -hmm. of the character because a lot of my reading of it was that the show really was kind of optimistic about people's ability to change and and about the abilities of institutions to help people. And then in that respect, it was almost kind of an inversion of corporate, which is so yeah. frequently nihilistic and, and very dark at every turn. But it sounds as if underneath the brightness, you definitely see a lot of the darkness in this show. Yeah. I mean, you know, this is a spoiler, but the, the nonprofit closes down, you know, it was, it was kind of this thing of like, you know, um, these billionaires came and they flaunted and offered their money and it didn't work out. And it's not like a happy story because we kept saying, I kept saying, you know, working class life is not all, it's like these, they're not miserable, but it's like living life paycheck to paycheck can be hard. Or oftentimes, I, at least I know from my own experience, when I was living most of my life working class, it always felt like a win one win felt like two steps backwards. Like I, 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 I really remember one time getting a check from a job and I had worked a lot of overtime and being really happy. And I, I remember like I came out and I, my car was towed. And then aside from that, there was like, I had a bunch of parking tickets on it as well that I was like catching up on. So, you know, I, I wanted to make sure that the, the gang members reflected in the show uh, felt human and they felt like they were earnestly trying to change their lives, but there was something bigger that happens, you know, and sometimes these places, they close down or 
or even like Michael Imperioli characters mentions in the beginning, Richard Branson rather give money to go to space than to help out human beings. You know, it's like things of that nature. So, yeah. Were there any topics that you felt like you wanted to or needed to tiptoe around? I'm uh, having you having mentioned the serious man connection. I'm particularly curious about the religion centric episode because that yeah. is that is a very nuanced depiction of religion in that episode. Yeah, I I wanted to make sure I w- like that episode particularly because you know who wants to break their mom's heart? You know. <laughs> <laughs> I remember thinking to myself, this is the only time I'm grateful my grandma is not around. <laughs> like, I just thought, you know, this might break her heart a little bit. But it also just came from being like growing up Catholic the way that we grew up Catholic. You know, my mom had a full time job and I oftentimes had two jobs. So to her, she was like, I remember one time her telling me, it's OK if we don't go to church. We like have work. We have to work. So, you know. Every few months, just take flowers to the Virgen de Guadalupe and you'll be fine. You know, it was a very kind of like working class way to look at things. And, you know, I just remember getting to a certain age and being like, I think I'm just doing this for my, for my grandmother or my mom. Like, I'm not really, I don't really, Catholicism doesn't really mean that much to me or like, it just, I remember when I got to a certain age, I was like, wait, I don't think this makes sense, you know, but you kind of keep, I know a lot of my friends in in where I grew up, a lot of my friends who are Mexican or Central American, they'll baptize their kids even if they don't believe in religion or Catholicism, just to kind of make their parents happy. I mean, it, it felt like everybody's kind of everybody's kind of putting a charade for each other. Yeah. Okay. And so your mom's reaction to the episode was? My mom's reaction to the episode was just she shook her head and just said, you're crazy, you know. And then that was her reaction. She goes, I, I don't see you're crazy. <laughs> well, knowing how uh, the season ends, obviously, mm. you, you mentioned about what happens to the nonprofit. But what kind of how, how have you been thinking about a potential second season? What kind of feedback have you been hearing from Hulu? And where would you like to see this show go? I don't know. Kind of. We want to keep exploring the relationship of Luis and Julio, these two cousins that are kind of at the hip. You know, but also exploring, like, where are these characters after the program closes down? Like, where's the Michael Imperioli character, Minister Payne? Like, where is he in his life? And kind of discovering, like, what happens to your life after this place, your workplace that sometimes comes to identify you as done with? I mean, you think about, like, it was a perfect workplace for Julio because he was able to... He was able to consume himself with other people's problems in order not to work on his own. And now that doesn't exist for him. So what does that look like? You know, and what does that look like for the Minister Payne character who seemed to be doing the same thing as well? He was kind he seemed to be a guy when he gave a spiel in the first episode and in some of the other episodes, I go, I wanted to give the intention that this guy is trying to write his wrongs. So it's exploring that wanting to wanting to see what's life after this. And do we bring it back? Do we not? You know, I, I promised that I was going to go back to the lowbrow aspect yeah, of please. the show. Yeah, please do. And so there's, you know, there's no good transition to this question, but 
What are the challenges <laughs> to making explosive diarrhea both gross and unwatchable, but also oh. just the tiniest bit romantic? Yeah, it was it was so funny because uh, unfortunately that was something that really happened to me, uh, where I I during the pandemic me and my girlfriend wanted to go on a hike, so we went hiking over in Topanga Canyon, and I ate something that did not sit well in my stomach, and I already have stomach issues as it as it stands, and that happened. And I think, I think what was the way we wanted to take it was, I, I always joke, I go, it was disturbing how supporting my girlfriend was when it happened. You know, it was just, I remember she just said, it's better it happened now than it seven years into our relationship. Then imagine if it would have happened in the first year, like, and that's the way we <laughs> depicted it in, in the show, which is, you know, Maggie's like, it's okay. You know, it's fine. <laughs> but, you know, he just had this embarrassing moment, you know, of just like having that. But also just like, I just think, you know, there's something so lowbrow about it to me that it's incredibly funny. And we never show it. We cut to P-22 um, attacking some people. And that was our way to kind of show it. <laughs> I mean, there's there's some audio. It's more than entirely yeah, implied. Yeah. But. You're right. You're right. There's, there's definitely audio. There's definitely audio. Well, I mean, that sort of that sort of goes with another side of my question, which which would be sort of uh, people are going to assume invariably that large amounts of this are autobiographical, and you're sort of confirming certain things are. Is there anything that you would like to make it clear is 100 percent not? autobiographical <laughs> oh yeah i mean there's there's a lot of things i took from my life to put in this show but i never worked at a nonprofit. i never you know i always had kind of either blue collar or or customer service type jobs i, I never worked at a nonprofit. but what was so interesting to me about this nonprofit space of rehabilitating gang members is that there is um there's a precedent for them they do exist there's homeboy industries. There's, um, there's places like, there's this place that I found out about called Covenant House that helps people who come out of the foster, who age out of the foster care system. And there's other programs like this around the country. Not many, but there are. And I thought to myself, well, that's interesting because if we see, I go, if we show this aspect of gang life, we can subvert that with these people who are earnestly trying to change their lives. And what is sometimes the bullshit they're putting up with is maybe a lack of funds, but also having to put up with these two idiots, Julio and Luis, who keep fighting. You know, uh, obviously the show is, is now streaming. You can watch the entire season on, on Hulu. But what's next for you? Are you going back on, on stand up or are you working on writing season two, et cetera? Yeah, we're we're hoping to write season two. We're just waiting to hear. And then um, but we feel optimistic. We uh Online, the people online have been really raving about the show and critics seem to like it, which really is I'm happy about, you know, and then um, so I'm going to I'm going to be doing stand up because I, I love stand up and I don't want to be done with it yet. I feel like I'm not done. That's great. And, you know, we do like to wrap these interviews with the same question. What have you been watching and enjoying lately? What have I been watching and enjoying? Let's see. Barry, I really enjoy Barry a lot. I love that. The new season of Atlanta is really great. And then the last thing I really like is Reservation Dogs. Great taste. Excellent. 
Well, thank you so much for joining us, Chris. We appreciate it. Thanks, Leslie. Thanks, Dan. The first season of This Fool is now available on Hulu. Number five. As usual, we wrap things up with the Critics' Corner. Among this week's major new launches, you've got She-Hulk on Disney+, Plus, the latest Marvel series there. Sharon Horgan stars in Bad Sisters, which makes its debut on Apple. And it's dragon time, Dan. HBO has its fingers and toes crossed that the Game of Thrones prequel House of the Dragon connects. Dan, what you got this week? I think I'm going to save the best for the last or the biggest for last or whatever. Uh, and since She-Hulk has already premiered, let's start there. She-Hulk is a very, very silly TV show. And I understand that people view silliness as being inherently negative. I don't really mean to be negative when I call She-Hulk a silly television show. I just think it adjusts expectations. I think that She-Hulk Attorney at Law is exactly the TV show that is promised by the title She-Hulk Attorney at Law. And I think that probably there will be some desire to read it in comparison to who knows what else. And, and in some cases, it will be appropriate. My own review said that it's more like the kind of traditional sitcoms uh, that the first couple episodes of WandaVision were tweaking and paying homage to and and subverting than the last couple episodes of WandaVision that were basically destroying the format, tearing up the world, and being a dark psychological whatever. Plus Marvel, 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 Marvel. And and She-Hulk is really, it's kind of, it's it's a joke machine, it's a Marvel reference machine, it's a bright, sunny, fast-moving show that, at least through the four episodes I've seen, has no particular dramatic stakes, no particular ongoing adversary of any particular, uh, you know, real threat to the main character. It's Tatiana Maslany becoming slightly larger and green and practicing law at the same time. And if that sounds silly to you, it probably should. And I don't think in any way that the show and creator uh, Jessica Gao are attempting to treat it as more serious or more layered than that. And mostly I kind of enjoyed and was amused by the ride of the silliness, by a lot of the references, by a lot of the Easter eggs, some of which are are very, very quick and subtle, and some of them are not quick or subtle, and that's how it goes. Like the first episode features Smart Hulk for basically the entire episode in what is kind of a glorified training montage. And it's definitely not the best of the four episodes I've seen. But on the other hand, it's got Mark Ruffalo as Smart Hulk, and so that will make some people happy or some people annoyed that this is what they chose to do with the presence of Smart Hulk. And I think that there will probably be some of that. I think that, you know, Benedict Wong makes an appearance and makes multiple appearances, and the character, the Sorcerer Supreme and all of that, who's been used with some comic undertones in other Marvel properties, but he's treated here straight up comedically. And I think probably there will be some people who feel like the character needs to be protected from silliness at any cost. 
It didn't bother me. I thought it was funny. Uh, along the same lines, Tim Roth as Emil Blonsky and Abomination is used here, and he is used in a way that is part of the ongoing silliness. There's a plot about how Emil Blonsky slash Abomination is about to get parole. It makes no sense. You can't stop on a legal level and go, why on earth would this character who becomes a uh, a vicious mutated killing machine be getting parole. You can't go, that is going to be an important thing later in the Marvel Universe. And if it turns out that in future movies, Abomination becomes serious again, and the reason why he's not in prison is because of a very strange parole subplot on in She-Hulk, that might be a little bit ridiculous. But for the purposes here, it makes sense. I think there are several characters where some people are going to feel like, wait, that character really should be more serious than they're taken here. Um, I, I don't know what to say about that. Tatiana Maslany is amusing. The supporting cast is thus far largely underused because if you have Mark Ruffalo, you get the most out of him for an episode. If you have Benedict Wong, you try to get the most out of him. You try getting value from Tim Roth. So that means that the actual people who are regulars in the cast, whether it's uh, Ginger, Ginger Gonzaga or other people of that nature, uh, Josh Sagara, who I know a lot of people love from from various and sundry TV shows, etc. Most of them are completely and totally underused. And so maybe down the road, eventually, they'll have to get more used. I, I think that it is very important to know going in, you are getting a a somewhat silly, very, very meta show that doesn't have huge action sequences that really work in any particular way that, you know, the, the, you can't go in looking for it to be a show that it isn't trying to be. I think that it is very much the show it is trying to be. And... I was largely amused by it. Also, at a half hour per episode, the stakes are low for viewership as well, which is somewhat helpful. Uh, continuing with new sh shows that are premiering, you made fun of the name Freebie earlier in this podcast, and we've made fun of it several times. Uh, what is Freebie. that name? Freebie. So Freebie, they actually have a TV show that I'm about to review. Uh, so go figure. And that TV show would be Sprung. And the premise of Sprung is it's the spring of 2020 and prisons are letting out nonviolent offenders to go out into a world where everybody is basically prisoners in their own homes. And so in this case, you have a group of nonviolent offenders uh, who are released and they find themselves living with one of their mothers, basically. So uh, Garrett Dillahunt and Philip Garcia play a pair of inmates, and they end up living with Philip Garcia's character named Rooster, because he once played Rooster from Annie in a elementary school play, living with his mom, uh, who is played by Martha Plimpton. And it's here that you're probably going, wait, Martha Plimpton and Garrett Dillahunt starred together in a little TV show called... Uh, called Raising Hope a few years ago. And guess what? This one is also created by Greg Garcia. And if you know Greg Garcia's thing, this is a lot like that. I, I feel fairly confident that if you liked the first couple seasons of My Name is Earl, if you liked Raising Hope, you will probably enjoy Sprung. It is 
very much the Greg Garcia model of humor. And for people who enjoy it and know, it, it kind of starts generally from kind of a lowbrow place. He he always gives the impression that he's making fun of his characters, many of whom are from blue-collar backgrounds. And th the thing is, if you watch his shows, he almost never actually is. He almost always has a deep well of compassion for his characters, and the humor comes from laughing at and with them at the same time. He is he is an expert at uh, at writing stupid characters smartly, and this character has a Jewish bikini dancer named Wiggles, played by uh, Claire Gillis, who is absolutely hilarious and just becomes better and better as the show goes along, and her Jewishness plays important dividends towards the end of the season. Anyway, the premise is that they get out of prison and... Part of what they do is they start robbing people, but Garrett Dillahunt's character insists that they only rob people who deserve it and that they also give some of their takings to people who need it more. So there's an altruistic, big-hearted undertone to it. I, I think probably, and you just heard our interview with Chris Estrada, it's actually a really good compliment with uh, this fool. I, I think that probably similar audiences would like both shows. So again, if you like Greg Garcia and the thing he does, you will almost certainly like Sprung a lot. And guess what? The great thing about Freebie is, what does it cost, Leslie? It's Freebie. It's right there in the name, Dan. It is. It is. Former. It's the artist formerly known as IMDb TV for the people who don't remember or don't know. Anyway, continuing with reviews for shows that aren't House of the Dragon, which is the really the only thing that you're uh, waiting for me to get to, Echoes on Friday on Netflix. It is created by Vanessa Gazzi and uh, showrun by Brian Yorkie from uh, 13 Reasons Why. I want to call it 13 Reasons I Hate About You, but that's clearly not what it is. Uh, and it has a... a Really, really very, very good cast. Uh, the cast includes Michelle Monaghan, Matt Bomer, Daniel Sinjata, um, Michael O'Neill, Celia Weston, a bunch of people who you recognize. And the premise is it's a story of, of two twin sisters who, well, let's just say they're, they're doing strange things that involve swapping their lives and the question of who the good sister is and who the good bad sister is and and what it has to do with several deaths from their past it is all very 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 involved and twisty and uh, Michelle Monaghan plays the two main characters the twins and this is just one of those things where if you're an actor you're going to have fun doing it and she's really good Michelle Monaghan I will always be a fan of from Kiss Kiss Bang Bang she will always have a place in my heart it is one of those performances that to my mind should have made her for at least a couple of years an unimaginably large star and it's a small disappointment that you know she was she was in a Mission Impossible movie she she got some big roles out of it but like the last thing I saw her in on television was that strange is the person calling himself a messiah in Israel really a messiah is World War Three coming drama on Netflix called Messiah, which was very bad. This is not bad, like, or maybe it is bad, but it's entertainingly bad. So I don't like lots of shows that are in this kind of serious drama with no obvious otherwise hook 
sometimes try to steer away from the guilty pleasureness of it and then become just boring instead. And the best example or the most recent example would be Surface on Apple TV Plus with Gugu Mbatha-Ra. You know, good actors, decent premise, really dull execution. In this case, it is not dull. It is it is twisty and enjoyable, even if it's stupid. And for four episodes, I was really invested in trying to figure out where it was going and how they were going to pull off the magic trick that they were trying to pull off. The, the answer is that they don't. The, you, you get to an episode, I believe it's episode five, and it just explains everything. And it explains everything in like long monologues saying, here's how everything was done. Here's what the explanation is for everything. And suddenly, once everything is explained, then you have a couple episodes where everything's been explained and nothing is really entertaining anymore. And and that's too bad. And it's a large disappointment that there wasn't anywhere equally crazy that it had to go after those first couple episodes. But there will be people who will be very happy to sit and watch the craziness for a while. And then maybe if you're caught up in it enough, it'll, you know, carry through and, and you won't worry that the last three episodes are 95% exposition. Uh, one thing I will note is that the series features a very, very, very amusing and I have to believe 100% intentional semi parody, semi homage to Columbo featuring Karen Robinson, Canadian actress Karen Robinson, who people will know from uh, Schitt's Creek and other things as a local sheriff who literally at one point is about to leave a crime scene and turns around and says, and one more thing. It, it is so completely an attempt to make a Columbo story buried into this crazy story about twins and murder and stuff. And I really dug that. I thought that was very, very funny. And that character also gets uh, submerged in all of the exposition in the last few episodes. But up until that point, I was completely and totally uh, down with at least that character and the somewhat silly thing that she was doing. Again, nothing wrong with silly if that's what it's intending to be. And finally, last but not least, the embargo for House of the Dragon has not yet lifted as we're talking about this, but it will have lifted by the time that this podcast comes out. And yeah, so the first disclaimer I have to say is this is only a partial review. As of now, critics have been sent five episodes. I've watched four. There will be a sixth episode sent presumably in the next day or two, which we've been assured is an important episode. Um, if you listen to our conversation with our colleague James Hibbard, talked a little bit about time jumps within the show and whatnot, and let's just say it's related to that. Um, and so the review of mine that will be up on Friday morning will be a full review that actually is able to take into account six episodes. This is me talking about four. So thus far, the show is reasonably entertaining while at the same time feeling at every single point like someone is attempting to reverse engineer Game of Thrones in a new version, rather than attempting to do something completely different and standalone within the same universe that has the same feeling or the same successful vibes. And that's not 
bad because at times the reverse engineering is, I would say, really, really acceptable. Did not say exceptional. I said acceptable. Uh, and you sit there and you go, okay, that character is very clearly supposed to remind me of this. That character is very, very clearly supposed to remind me of that. That reference they just made is absolutely a reference to this thing in the future that I will know about. And so it's deeply important to me. Uh, there's a, there's a lot of that. And there's no covering the fact that the decision to focus on one house, specifically the house Targaryen, means the show is a lot of one house, one set of characters, and one set of voices. And in retrospect, having been able to take a step back or to watch this, a lot of what was fun or most entertaining about the original series was seeing the different houses and seeing the different voices that they had and having the ability to go, okay, here is the way that geography and the years of inbreeding caused this house to have this determined glum approach to the world and had these people who lived in a much sunnier climate being much more optimistic and positive and had these people who were even more inbred, basically only caring about themselves, etc. So the Targaryens, ultimately, the dragons are the thing that are most important to them. As the title says, they are the house of the dragon and they are the ones who have the eggs and they have the control over multiple dragons. And that means that this is a series where you don't need to wait for season three or season four to get large, full grown dragons. They're just, they're just right there. Um, and so, yeah, but they also have a very particular amoral sensibility. And here there is nothing to counter that. Um, some of the characters are, interesting and appealing and some of the actors playing them are very very good and so you have uh patty constantine as king viserys the first you will remember a later viserys from the first season of game of thrones things did not end too well for him it's unclear if things gonna, are going to end too well for this king viserys but probably they aren't because it wouldn't be a particularly entertaining show if he just reigned for 50 years successfully and everybody loved him. Uh, also in the first episode, he has a couple sores that aren't healing properly properly. So that's bound to be relevant. He's the King. You have Matt Smith chewing aggressively on scenery as his brother who feels as if he should be heir, but he's not. Uh, and then you have a couple of the younger actors popping up. Um, Millie Alcott plays uh, Rhaenyra. I believe that's her name, but there's also a character played Renace, who's not the same person. Too many of these names are going to be very, very similar. It's it's worth noting that I read the George R. R. Martin books before Game of Thrones premiered and found that to be a tremendous asset. I did not read the book that accompanies this story, which is more of a history book, apparently. Um, and as a result, a lot of the names were utter gibberish to me. But guess what? I think probably that's partially intentional, and you're just supposed to be able to go with the groove that it's a story about a number of fathers not really understanding what to do with their daughters and trying to wed them off, but the daughters not wanting to go down traditional female skewing uh, directions and trying to stand up on their own. There are dragons. They're lots of fun. They're 
big effects. They haven't suddenly corrected some of the problems with the dragon effects. So people riding on dragons consistently looked silly in Game of Thrones to me. They look silly to me here as well. That's how it goes. But the production design is is bonkers good, and the costumes are bonkers good, and the score is bonkers good. So you've got all of those technical things. I think that Millie Alcott is a really good lead. The problem, as you may have heard, is that some of the characters, well, they're going to age into different people. And so if you invest in the younger versions of the characters, that could cause a problem because you're investing in people who are really only temporary servants. And so I have yet to get to the episodes with some of the older people. I will have by the time I write my review. Short term, though, the younger actors are really, really good. And then the the older actors, you've got uh, Reese Ephens, who's uh, very good as one of those quintessential Game of Thrones characters who seems highly moral, which is almost never a good way to be a Game of Thrones character, etc. Um, the you know, there's there's a lot of sex and a lot of nudity, and it's somewhat twisted sex. And the thing you always have to keep in mind is that in Game of Thrones, sex is almost never about love or romance. It's almost always a manifestation of power or a manifestation of violence. And unfortunately, that means that there's some sexual violence or some sexuality of a disturbing sort. And there's a lot of that. Uh, but, you know, it's not, it doesn't feel as bad as Game of Thrones got at certain points. Uh, but, yeah. So, I'm I'm curious. I'm interested. I think there are a lot of things that this does well, and I'm definitely not dismissive. So, you're going to have to check out my review on, on Friday for a full review, but um, I'm, I'm curious, I'm interested, and there are a lot of things that House of the Dragon does well. For more of Dan's weekly recommendations, be sure to subscribe to THR's Now See This newsletter and bookmark THR.com slash TV dash reviews for more. That feels like a good place to wrap things up. Thank you, as always, for listening to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. And as a programming reminder, we are dark August 26th. Our next episode will be September 2nd, when we'll be joined by The Handmaid's Tale showrunner Bruce Miller. Be sure to subscribe on all of your various podcasting platforms. If you like us, rate us. If you really like us, write a little reviewy thing. It does help spread the word of mouth. You can always come say hi to us on Twitter. We love to hear what's working, what isn't working, etc. Well, I mean, we don't love to hear what isn't working, but, you know, we, we accept it and acknowledge it and sometimes try yeah, to do just better. come talk to us on Twitter. Sure. Come talk to us on Twitter. If you have questions for future mailbag segments, and we thank you for this week's questions, you can email us at TV's Top 5 at THR.com. That's TV's Top 5, the numeral 5, at THR.com. Until two weeks from now, Leslie... Until then, Dan.